0: Welcome to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick discuss a drive-in double feature randomly selected from a list of over 1,600 movies. Now, what is a drive-in film? Well, we're defining it as something that might be just below the mainstream, something from a genre that doesn't get the respect it deserves. These could be cult movies, midnight movies, giallos, slasher movies, black exploitation flicks, erotic thrillers, etc. Or, these might just be movies that evoke the youthful spirit of drive cinema of the 1950s and 1960s. I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim. Alright, Jim, happy Friday the 13th, or perhaps Saturday the 14th, whenever we get this episode out.
1: Yeah, happy Friday the 13th and or 14th, and I hope you don't mind, Patrick, I'm cracking a nice cold uh, Molson Canadian.
0: Alright, that's fair. Yeah, that's that works pretty well for our second movie.
1: Yeah, so I guess we watched two movies. Kind of interestingly, I was thinking about this while watching our second movie before we get into it, that one movie kind of paved the way for an icon, and the other movie starred two icons.
0: I think we're using... Icon's a bit liberally on the second part, but I'll I'll give you (laughs) one Okay, well,
1: maybe maybe cultural icons. At least everybody I know thinks of them as cultural icons.
0: The icon you're referring to is, of course, Hosehead the dog, I assume. Of course. (laughs) All right. Well, that's because the two movies we are doing today are the original Friday the 13th from 1980 and Strange Brew from 1983, a.k.a. The Adventures of Bob and Doug McKenzie,
1: Uh, Yeah, I was about to say, yeah.
0: Which, that's the title that comes up, and then the real title comes up right after that. But the first movie we're doing is Friday the 13th, as I mentioned before, from 1980. This is obviously a groundbreaking horror slasher movie it was made for well under a million i think just over half a million and it grossed about 60 million at the box office that's not a whole lot right now but i mean it is a lot for the budget that it was but it was a ton of movie back then this movie was a huge hit started a, a long running and beloved if not critically beloved franchise. I was shocked, actually,
1: at how little they made the movie for. I mean, I guess I'm not really after watching it, but you just think that the first installment, I guess, of a major franchise would be a little more
0: expensive to produce? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, this movie is actually released by paramount but it's essentially an Mm -hmm. independent movie i believe paramount basically bought the distribution for it and they did so because the movie's ad campaign literally started before the movie had even shot anything sean s cunningham and victor miller the director and writer respectively who had worked together on a few movies bought out an ad in i think it was variety or something and they just said friday the 13th like the most terrifying horror movie ever made They hadn't actually made it, but they did that so that they could get some interest in, I guess, Paramount came a calling.
1: Now, was it Cunningham that worked on Halloween?
0: No, neither of them worked on Halloween, but basically both of them saw Halloween and are like, okay, let's rip this off. I mean, it's, it's... Okay, yeah. That sounds kind of harsh, but that's more or less what Cunningham has said. I don't know if Miller's been as upfront about that, but they saw a lot of the tricks that Halloween pulled, and they wanted to do the same thing. They do it. They don't work as well here because this just isn't as well-made a movie. Halloween being such a low-budget movie that did so well, it makes sense to kind of take inspiration from that. The only mild success, you know, approaching success that Sean Cunningham had had up to this point was he was a producer on the film Last House on the Left, which was Wes Craven's first movie. Wes Craven, we just did Shocker. Mm. Like Halloween, the movie starts in the past, in this case in 1958, as opposed to 1963, at beautiful Camp Crystal Lake at night. There are a bunch of camp counselors gathering around singing and we have some other character walking around the camp and the camera is in their point of view, again much like the original Halloween which that opening scene with Michael as Mm -hmm. a child. This person, this figure, walks into one of the cabins, sees all these children asleep and then two of the counselors that were singing get together to go have sex upstairs. And the camera comes up, and the two stop and acknowledge who this person is. They don't say, obviously, but they know who this person is. And they're like, oh, we weren't doing anything. And then they get killed. And then we cut to a classic opening credits sequence where the title flies at the screen. There's a breaking glass effect. We get these harsh, fast, and energetic strings from composer Harry Manfredini, who it becomes clear later on is... More or less ripping off the Bernard Herm- Herman score for Psycho. I mean, not as bad as Reanimator did it, but <laughs> there's there's oh, a yeah, clear sure. line of influence there.
1: Before we continue, now was it off Mike that we spoke about the I guess could you call it a theme or motif that if you have sex you die in horror movies? And yeah,
0: well I, I kind of mentioned that in Shocker because one of the characters they make a point of mentioning hasn't had sex with this person.
1: Would that have been started by Halloween or do you think it was Friday the Thirteenth that really kind of started that tradition
0: i don't think it was truly like a tradition at this point like people credit it to halloween but it's also like with a lot of these movies these slasher movies were often criticized or sometimes even praised by certain people from different kind of ideologies for condemning you know lecherous teens teens that have sex and really if you'll ask the people that made these movies they basically just said they're not getting killed because they're having sex they're getting killed because they're distracted and then the one person that's not having sex isn't distracted so Mm there so there usually she is is able to figure out what's going on more and this movie though does make a point of again not necessarily trying to moralize it but we learn later that the killer's motivations have something to do with sex very much so. Whereas in Halloween, like, we don't see Jamie Lee Curtis have sex, but that doesn't, like, mean she is a prude or anything. It's kind of just, like, in that movie, she, you know, it just never comes up in that movie.
1: Similar with a character we see in this movie.
0: So, in the present day now, a camp counselor named Annie shows up in town and is looking for a ride to Camp Crystal Lake. She goes into some kind of diner and mentions that and everyone kind of freezes and looks at her before a truck driver volunteers to take her near there. And we find the reason everyone reacts that way is because people believe that Camp Crystal Lake is cursed or something, which we learn when she runs into a character known throughout the series as Crazy Ralph, this old, kind of weird guy who just comes up to her and and refers to it as Camp Blood and says that you know, you're you're gonna die or whatever. So not the most original kind of thing, because this kind of thing shows up in so many movies.
1: And I want to say, too, like, all the characters in the movie... (laughs) I don't know if it's just because it was filmed in, like, 1980 slash 79 or whatever. (laughs) All the characters in this small town, like, look like actual people in that actual small town. Like, you know what I mean?
0: You do not get the sense that these people are actors.
1: No, definitely not.
0: I mean, the, the main characters, you know, Annie, for instance i'm sure is an actor but just everyone in the in the town even even later there's a scene at the diner and this like old lady <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah, she's like great. yeah these people are not real actors these are local people either from new jersey or connecticut i say new jersey because they shot in new jersey i say connecticut mm-hmm. because that's where cunningham and i believe miller were from so somewhere in that northeast area during this truck ride to camp crystal lake the Trucker reveals that he is also superstitious, and he mentions a bunch of incidents. He says two counselors were killed in 1958, which we just saw. He mentions a boy drowned in 57, and there were some other incidents, fires, things like that. This sounds like just kind of throwaway stuff, but it's actually kind of important, because I should say, if you haven't seen this movie, I encourage you to see it, because I I do believe that there are enough people out there that would be surprised by the directions that this movie goes in. I mean, if you've seen Scream, it spoils it, but this isn't Mm -hmm. what the rest of the series is. I mean, in many ways it is, (laughs) but it's, it's a little different than the rest of the series it has kind of different well i don't know but this is a mystery film it's arguably the world's worst mystery film because 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 that yeah (laughs) because you can't really actually guess who it is and a few times throughout the movie you think you're getting a clue but then really you're not because how could you have guessed it when we actually get the reveal
1: the quote-unquote twist i guess which isn't even really a twist just a reveal not even (laughs) it's not it's not like a twist or anything you know
0: Anyways, so Ned, Marcy, and Jack, Jack who is played by Kevin Bacon, show up at the camp where they're supposed to be working. They meet Steve Christie, who's the camp owner, who's shirtless throughout <laughs> dude, these couple he's the of scenes. looking dude ever. <laughs> <laughs> Very shirtless. And then they also are, they're all put to work along with Alice, who's played by Adrian King, and Bill, who's played by one of Bing Crosby's sons. I don't remember his name off the top of my head then steve and alice have this scene when alice is trying to fix a gutter there may or may not be some kind of ongoing or previous relationship between these two characters but alice has apparently made it clear to him that she plans on leaving and going back home Mm -hmm. i think to california at some point but he's trying to convince her to stay and he's Maybe hitting on her. I don't know. It doesn't really matter, but you can kind of read between the lines in some relationships with these characters. It's not super deep. It's not really deep at all, but there is something going on these characters aren't as bad as a lot of the characters in, in sequels to this movie and in movies you know lesser movies that were kind of inspired by this
1: no you know it, it's not deep but it's certainly
0: awkward oh yeah this scene is is yeah it's kind of uncomfortable <laughs> especially because we don't really especially
1: because he's shirtless we... is, is he's still shirtless in this <laughs> scene <laughs>
0: And he's got his uh, Geraldo mustache. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, we we don't really know the ages of these characters. I'm definitely under the impression that the counselors are all, you know, college age, 19, 20, somewhere around there. Steve is the wild card. He could be 30, he could be 35. I don't really know. He definitely seems too old to be having a relationship with Alice.
1: He listen, he definitely looks 35.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know how much of that is just like the hair and the it's the mustache ages him, I think, just because you don't see young people with a mustache like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like a creepy, (laughs) I'm not even gonna go there, never mind. You can just imagine like a creepy, creepy looking mustache. That's it.
0: So Steve gives all of the counselors jobs and then heads into town to run errands of some sort. We never really find out what he's doing. So Brenda, who's a character we hadn't met in the previous scene, sets up the archery range and nearly gets hit by an arrow shot by Ned, who's just messing around. And this this scene really only exists to kind of establish that Ned's the goofy kind of prankster, jokester type, mm-hmm. which, you know, that shows up in most of these movies, that's archetype. But I also like that we do just get a number of scenes of these kids just kind of hanging out and having a good time and it's i can't really say or say it's character development but i like that those scenes are there just to kind of remind you that these people who most of whom will end up dying soon enough are just kind of they're just kind of innocent and going about on their day-to-day just try, just trying to enjoy themselves again you're right we don't
1: really get any information about the characters because they're pretty set from the minute we meet them but, uh, yeah,
0: the only scene where we really learn anything about the characters is that scene between Alice and Steve, I, I would say.
1: Yeah, well, also, what about that scene where um, uh, Nick... Oh, and J-
0: Jack and Marcy also have a conversation that kind of Yeah. fleshes out their characters a bit later. Anyways, Annie, the counselor who hasn't shown up yet at camp, gets dropped off by a cemetery, foreshadowing. And she starts walking around trying to get another ride because she's near Camp Crystal Lake, but she's not quite there. She gets picked up by a Jeep. And after about a minute, we kind of realize they never showed the driver's face. So we kind of know what's going on here. Yeah. And the driver goes past the entrance to Camp Crystal Lake and starts freaking out Annie. The driver also never talks. So Annie jumps out of the Jeep and tries to escape in the woods on foot where she's chased. And this is where the music really, really sounds like Psycho, I would say. And then just as she thinks she's found safety, she gets her throat slit.
1: Which, you know, interestingly, I hadn't seen this movie in like, I don't know, maybe like five or six years or something that. And I couldn't remember what had happened to her for whatever reason. But she's the only character in this movie who doesn't talk about or or do anything involved with sex. And she dies like immediately.
0: Yeah, we get a scene. It's the same scene when she's talking to the driver and the driver never says anything mm-hmm. where she's kind of laying out like she loves working with kids. She's just like really optimistic mm-hmm. and hopeful and happy, almost to an extent that I actually don't really like the way that scene is written that much because it's like so overdramatic. But yeah, she th- the point is she's wholesome and innocent. And she's just there to have a
1: good summer with kids, you know?
0: Exactly. And it should also be noted that I don't think this works that well, but this was kind of an attempt by Cunningham and Miller to kind of set her up as like the Janet Lee in Psycho, where Uh, she's the first teen that we meet in the modern day, and so you're kind of supposed to think that she's the main character, mm -hmm. and then she dies. I've seen this movie a number of times, but I don't think when I first saw it that I really felt that was going to be the case, but that's me. I
1: definitely... definitely remember thinking that she was going to be a main character until she hopped in that jeep
0: well the the jeep is it's there's a tell pretty soon when you when you you don't realize or when you realize that the driver we don't see the driver and the driver doesn't say anything it's like okay i see what i see where this scene is headed Mm -hmm. but the throat slit is pretty great these are effects by tom savini who i think Maybe he only had a couple of credits before this movie. I know he did Dawn of the Dead with George Romero and Martin with George Romero as well. Mm -hmm. But throughout the 80s especially, he was kind of the go-to for violent deaths and or incredibly bloody, disgusting zombies. And his effects are good here. They're far from perfect. And I think a lot of that's just the movie's very low budget had they had a bigger budget like a movie like Day of the Dead they probably could have gotten some of these effects to look even better but I think this throat slit's pretty good
1: yeah I mean all the effects I mean not giving too much away but all the effects in the movie I think are pretty solid there's one with an axe which I thought was pretty good
0: the axe is good that might be the best effect uh
1: what about the arrow uh and uh Kevin that's
0: my favorite and it looks incredible in one shot and it looks kind of bad in another so we'll get to that okay Alright, so after Annie's been killed, the rest of the counselors are just kind of hanging out by the lake and we see just how this is really the first time we've seen this in the daytime we saw it at night earlier but I mean this is a beautiful location Mm -hmm. this movie was on television a while ago and I think my mom asked something asked me something like why were so many of these movies in the woods at camp and the simple answer to that is because it's cheap Mm -hmm. it's really cheap to shoot in the woods and also if you're shooting at a camp especially a pre-existing camp You have your living quarters right there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I know, I don't know about this movie specifically, but I know about other movies in the series where, like, people literally lived at the camp. That's probably the case here.
1: I want to point out, too, that the Friday the 13th series is the series that absolutely destroyed that (laughs) idea of the, like, idyllic, peaceful camp by the lake. For me, anyways. Oh yeah. I, like, <laughs> I was watching a scene. There's the scene at the beginning when I uh, when Steve drives away, and I'm like, oh, like that's beautiful. There's flowers and trees, and I thought, man, it's gonna be covered in blood in an hour, you know? Like
0: yeah, there were a bunch of camp slasher movies that kind of ripped this off in a similar to way way to how Friday the Thirteenth ripped off Halloween. So while Friday the Thirteenth is far from an original movie, it can be credited with creating this setting which has become just a big cliche in the genre, basically. Mm-hmm. In this scene, Ned pretends to drown and everyone kind of rushes to save him. And then we learn that, oh, it's just so he could get a kiss from Brenda, you know, when she's giving him mouth to mouth. And I think that's that's the same thing from the Sandlot, right? Yes, yeah that's like one of the famous scenes from the sandlot and this is probably not the first time that scene has come up i think that's kind of just like an old thing you know like it's just a classic prank yeah right? for sure for frank sure. i frank might not even be the right word but you know <laughs> sexual harassment is fun. it's
1: classic sexual harassment that's what it is
0: <laughs> yeah and uh and and so far his, all of his jokes have been directed at brenda while this is happening The killer is watching from across the lake. Again, we get more POV shots, and I I kinda like this stuff. Yeah. The movie has like a perfect excuse the POV. It's clearly doing it just because Halloween did it in its opening scene. But at the same time, it does it so much more often than Halloween, because again, Halloween really just the opening scene. But they're using it here to disguise the killer, which works. I mean, we're not trying to disguise Michael Myers once he gets his mask. We know who he is. We'll just have him in the background in half of these shots. But here we have no idea who the killer is. So it makes sense.
1: And as the audience watching, you know, I, I think there's something deeply unsettling about somebody watching you from from the woods, you know, from the deep, Dark woods.
0: Yeah, it's where the kind of the isolation of the setting oh, yeah, really th- works to kind of be creepy.
1: And I don't know if we mentioned this, but I think at the very beginning they were talking about just how isolated this camp is from everyone and everything. From the nearest town, they were something like uh, 20 miles.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly laid out in just Annie's tr- troubles to get here. Mm-hmm. I think it's more or less in the very next scene when the cop shows up. I can't remember if it was Miller or Cunningham, but they hated this scene because they wanted to make this movie so that you don't see any cops until the very end so that you really feel that isolation. I do think the cop kind of showing up makes it seem like this setting isn't as secluded as it is and should be. Yeah, I agree. Because later on we see Steve struggling to get back and we kind of realize, okay, this is in the middle of nowhere, but, you know, the cop shows up here on the motorcycle. And to
1: be honest, I just didn't like that scene. In, the cop in scene yeah I, th- I thought it was a little silly I uh, don't know if it was, oh it's like, very silly off, I mean I mean he but... shows
0: up when Ned is going around shirtless with like a headdress doing like Native American noises yeah it's 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 incredibly silly he's there just to ask if they've seen crazy Ralph basically but he's yeah confrontational from the start although that's also because you know he's just law and order guy and these guys are just goofing off I'm sure he smells the weed on Kevin bacon <laughs> uh, because because right when Kevin Bacon shows up he immediately <laughs> asks like what have you been smoking man.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but yeah, when he asks about Crazy Ralph, I mean like that scene didn't even need to exist to be honest. Like he didn't need to ask about Ralph. He could have just shown up. Like Ralph could have just shown up the way he did without Oh that yeah, I agree.
0: Existing. I agree. Because after the cop leaves, Alice finds Crazy Ralph just hanging out in the pantry and yeah. he does this whole you're doomed, you're all doomed thing then he Mm kind of just takes off on his bicycle oh and we skipped over another scene that i have to talk about there is a scene where alice finds a snake in her cabin Mm -hmm. and then she gets bill and all the others come in and try and get the snake who's like hiding under the bed and they end up basically tearing the cabin apart you know it's kind of a funny scene (laughs) yeah but bill eventually cuts its head off with a machete it's very unfortunate first of all because this is a real snake that's not oh, a special really? effect so that, yeah wow. that's very this movie has something in common with the amazon cannibal movies of the 70s and 80s in that there's a real animal death unfortunately but if you're super low budget i guess nobody cares you can get away with that you know mm-hmm. as horrible as it is but this scene is basically in there for one reason i think and that's Not just to establish that there is a machete, but a big thing with Tom Savini's kind of philosophy, for lack of a better word, in his special effects in, you know, how he chooses to kill people with weapons in in movies, is that he wants you to see the weapon doing something, cutting into something real, before Mm -hmm. either cutting into something fake, you know, like a fake head or something, or using a fake machete to cut into something real later on. So here we see this machete. It's unfortunate that it's a real snake, but I think that's kind of the philosophy behind this scene.
1: As soon as I saw the machete come on screen, it was it was obvious that this whole scene is about the machete.
0: Yeah. Also, Bill gets a pretty cool, like, hero pose after he cuts off the snake. He just, like, puts the machete back on his shoulder, and he's like... You can, like, tell he's, like, thinking, oh, I am so badass.
1: Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah.
0: Anyway, so after Alice finds Crazy Ralph and he heads off into the woods jack and marcy are just hanging around romantically again jack being the kevin bacon here and while this is happening the pranksters just kind of moving around and not really doing anything but he notices someone walking into a cabin so he follows them Jack and Marcy then have sex in their cabin while in the other cabin, or like the main cabin, I guess, kind of your main location. Brenda, Alice, and Bill all play a game of Strip Monopoly, which is kind of fun.
1: I've definitely heard of Strip Monopoly, and I think it's all because of this movie. I don't know if anybody... I, ha-
0: I haven't. Really? I mean, strip poker is one thing. I I, <laughs> I don't know anyone who's played Strip Monopoly. I,
1: I was going to say, I think it's only a thing because of this movie.
0: Maybe. I don't know. But at any rate, they are playing strip monopoly while smoking marijuana, and Jack and Marcy are having sex. And the camera goes up; it's storming outside at this point, so the camera goes up and shows that Ned's dead body is on the bunk right above them, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. And I like how this is illuminated by the lightning striking. Yeah,
1: it's 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 great. I don't want to call it like, like scene setting, but it's like the scene is great and everything is placed perfectly and the light Mm -hmm. casts great shadows all over everything and the noise and...
0: Oh, yeah, this, I like the, the noise of the storm in all these scenes. And the storm, of course, is essential here in this movie. One, it makes things, like, harder to see. But really the big reason is in all of these movies, any kind of slasher movie where somebody is killing off all these characters in, like, one night or one day, you basically need a reason to have those characters not care. Or maybe not, ca- not care, but you need a reason to have all of these characters not know where the others mm-hmm. are and the storm is what does that it's what holds up steve in town but it also the storm is what makes brenda end the game and she has to go back to her cabin is like oh i think i left my windows open Mm -hmm. good stuff so marcy gets up to go to the bathroom and when she's gone jack gets an arrow through his neck from underneath the bed in a really really fun scene probably the most brutal death in this movie because there is a lot of blood.
1: I love the way that uh, the hand came out from under the bed and grabbed his forehead. And then you yeah, saw that arrowhead. Yeah, kind of held him yeah, down. Yeah, and then you saw the arrowhead just, like, poking through his neck, like, twisting through his neck. Mm-hmm. Which oh, was yeah, it goes,
0: in, it goes through kind of slowly. Yeah. And I love... The, there's basically two shots of this. There's the shot from the side, which I think looks perfect. Mm-hmm. It looks so good. The body, the torso looks so authentic because, in actuality, it's just... It, Kevin Bacon's that's his head there, but he's under the bed and just kind of sticking his head up, and it's a fake torso. From the side, I, I really don't think you can tell. Then we get the shot from kind of head on, and you see that the body just... It's a different skin tone yeah, than the head. Yeah. But uh, it's fine. It's distract you're, you're distracted because there's blood coming up, and it's a neat effect. But I think it looks better from the side just because the lighting's different there from that angle.
1: I also like that right before Kevin Bacon was killed if he was like looking at something or he's reading something and he felt blood drip on him from the mattress above, which is where Ned's body was. He kind of like reached up to his forehead to touch blood and then the hand came up and grabbed him and it was great.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Marcy's in the bathroom, and the bathroom here, it's classic camp where the bathrooms, the showers, are their own separate building. She's just in there. She thinks she hears something, of course, because the killer does wander in while she's in there. And she's looking around, and then just as she thinks, it must have been my imagination, she gets an axe to the head, and this is great.
1: Oh, yeah, I mean, it's as brutal, I think, as Kevin Bacon's death.
0: Yeah, we don't see the actual mo- moment of penetration, which makes it different from Kevin Bacon's death, although not different from Kevin Bacon's scene with Marcy. <laughs> shut no, just kidding. You, shut don't, you don't see a whole lot. <laughs> but,
1: Get out of here. That is a stupid joke.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so like, because the axe goes up and when it goes up, it's a real axe or it has weight to it because it hits the light. Yeah, when it's coming down. And then when we cut to her face, that's obviously, it's her real face but just with a fake axe in it, but it looks pretty darn good.
1: Oh yeah, I mean like half of her face is, is essentially missing because of this axe and it just looks so brutal. <laughs> it just does. Mm-hmm.
0: I also love the shot. It's when she's saying like, oh, it must have been my imagination. We see the shadow of the axe being lifted above her or behind her. Yes, yeah. It's it's great, great stuff. So Brenda is back at her cabin she's just reading a book and she starts to hear a voice calling for help outside and so she gets up she's in her nightgown and she goes outside and she's wandering outside for way too long this scene goes on for too long not just because it it gets a little dull it's the pouring rain
1: thunder and lightning It's, it's
0: the pouring rain there's no reason on earth that someone would wander out there for that long you might go out for a couple seconds okay who is that Oh, they can't identify themselves. I'm back inside. This is a prank. They're just trying to get me out in the rain or something. And
1: it sounds like a kid, too, by the way.
0: It's a high pitched voice. At any rate, she ends up on the archery range when the killer turns on the lights of the archery range, and it's really bright. And I don't know what it is about this scene, but this scene, better than any other scene in this movie, puts me in the position of the victim here. Like,. Mm -hmm. You can imagine just being Brenda here, and this would just be terrifying. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because it's so bright, you can't see anything. You're soaking wet. You can barely hear anything because the rain is so loud. And I don't know when those lights turn on. I think this is kind of the benefit of... there's an authenticity to a lower budgeted horror movie, whether it's this or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There's just, I think we're actually dealing with two movies today that are from genres that are often the benefits of lower budgets. But this one in particular, I think this scene, even though I said it it goes on for too long when she's just wandering around in the dark, it goes on for too long because why would the character be doing this? Mm-hmm. And also because you can barely see anything. But. This is good when we get the lights on.
1: Yeah, it, it goes on for too long. It feels drawn out, but it ends uh, spectacularly, I guess.
0: Yeah, well, we don't see Brenda die, but we do hear her scream, or rather Alice hears her scream mm-hmm. And when she's alone in her cabin, and Bill comes back, because Bill's been...
1: Fixing the generator or something? Yeah,
0: Bill was fixing the generator earlier because all the lights seem to go out, and Alice mentions that the lights went on at the archery range, but then they look out there, and there aren't any lights on. So while this is going on, Steve leaves the whatever diner he's at and says, like, you know, I have to get back. These these kids don't know anything about living in the outdoors, and it's a horrible storm, so, like, they need me. And it's absolutely beautiful and he's leaving at the diners. Oh, like, yeah, oh, yeah, him, You know? <laughs> and as he's leaving, we see that he drives a Jeep, which we're thinking, okay. Again, I mentioned earlier that this movie, I think, tries to throw us clues, but the clues are all misdirections, so I yeah. think we see that jeep and we're like okay that was the similar car to the one that picked up annie but then we also see that he's dragging you know he's got a trailer behind it and it's like okay the jeep earlier didn't have that Mm -hmm. i think it's supposed to be a misdirection you're supposed to think steve has something to do with something but at any rate he drives away and at a certain point he's having car trouble so he's just pulled over on the side of the road and gets picked up by a cop so back at the camp alice and bill think something is wrong So they go around looking, and they don't find anybody they're calling for people. They find a bloody axe in a bed. I think it's supposed to be Brenda's bed. Yeah. And they're like, okay. And they're not super freaked out by this. And I'm not sure if I would be, too. I mean, I'd be scared. But when you just find, like, an axe just hanging around in a bed, like, that kind of seems like a prank, doesn't it? Yeah, and I
1: mean, and they pretty much say as much, too. They're like, what the heck is going on here? This is crazy. I don't know if that scene for the viewer i don't think that scene is particularly scary because I mean, we already know that she's dead so i mean yeah I...
0: so steve is steve's with his with the cop as he's getting his ride and this is when we learn officially that it's friday the 13th so mm-hmm. the cop mentions like oh you know weird stuff always happens on friday the 13th it's also a full moon so it's doubly weird it's like more more car and, crashes
1: the... more murders more robberies yeah
0: but then the cop gets called into some kind of situation, so he has to drop Steve off short of the camp, and Steve has to wander, again, through the very, very, very dark woods to get back, and as he's doing that, he's greeted by someone with a flashlight, and it's the killer, of course, but he he recognizes the killer, you know, he, he's like, oh, hey, what are you doing here? But before we can learn who the killer is, he's stabbed below frame. Yeah. And I, I'm not a big fan of this scene. His reaction when he's getting stabbed, his facial reaction is kind of <laughs> fake. Uh, I don't know. This, this Steve guy, everything with him isn't that great. But
1: Fucking mustache, put your goddamn shirt on, stop hitting on teenagers, just stop it.
0: At any rate, Alice and Bill are still going around looking for people, and they can't find anybody. Alice is more worried than Bill, and she suggests calling, you know, somebody, the cops, and they get to whatever building has the phone, and it's locked, so they break in. And Mm -hmm. this is a really neat shot. This is probably my favorite shot of the movie. It's just, it's all one long shot. And as they go inside to call, the camera stays outside and just slowly pans to the left. Yes. And we see that the phone line is cut. Mm Mm-hmm which I think that's kind of neat.
1: Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, it was this great reveal. Much like with mm-hmm. uh, Dr. No <laughs> and the pan to reveal the gun in, uh, in both situations. I like this a little because bit, yeah. now it's it's definitely terrifying, and they should be terrified. And
0: and I, I like the acting by Adrian King here, but, who plays Alice. I don't think overall, I don't think it's a fantastic performance or anything, but I like in these couple of scenes how she just slowly gets more and more concerned and worried you can kind of see at first she's like yeah this is weird and she's like kind of scared but like she's thinking things will probably be okay Mm -hmm. and then she's i think she's flat out brilliant when she's in a full-on panic later but we'll talk about that so bill and alice find a car i assume it's the jack marcy and ned car and they try to start it and it won't start and then bill's like okay let's just get back and we'll go to bed or whatever whatever's going on here we will be laughing about it in the morning and Mm -hmm. i don't and i don't know if he's if he really thinks that or if that's just what he's trying to convince her and it doesn't really matter ultimately this is the terror of the location they're in even if something truly is wrong like what can they really do especially in the middle of a storm in the middle of the night yeah where can they go for help if especially if the phones are down
1: you made a great point earlier with the scene earlier on with the police officer It really kind of bridged that gap of of wilderness and i don't know secludedness what what is this they feel really close to the rest of society and even to be honest i mean even that scene with uh steve and the diner coming back i wish they didn't have that Mm -hmm. i wish it just showed him driving and like his car broke down that's just my personal little nitpick with it but
0: and steve is another reason why they feel better about just going back to the cabin they're like okay steve will be here soon Mm -hmm. like At any rate, when they're back, the killer cuts the power to the generator at some point. And this is, we learn later, this is when Alice is sleeping because Bill gets up, you know, he lights a lantern, he leaves some light for Alice, and he goes up to work on the generator again. And this scene was kind of disappointing to me because it's a long shot of him fixing the generator, and there's a lot of negative space over his right shoulder, you know, to the left of the shot, and you expect the killer to show up. Yeah. You really do. And this could have been a moment, actually, because there's only two people left. This could have been a moment where you reveal the killer if you wanted to. They didn't do that. And given who the reveal of the killer is, I think that's probably a wise move because the killer is not someone you could really guess. It's not a character we've met yet. But also just like, yeah, it's kind of disappointing. We could have gotten... A, a good scare moment here. But at the same time, it still kind of works for suspense because I'm waiting for that to happen.
1: There's also that bit when he's working on the generator, he kind of leans towards the camera, and it would have been nice if, like, you could have seen a hand come up from behind the generator and just, like, pull him back or something like that, or if he.
0: Yeah. At any rate, we don't see what happens to Bill. We don't hear anything. It's just Alice wakes up in the middle of the night. We don't know how much longer Mm -hmm. later but sees that okay he left a lantern for me so bill must have been out doing something but she doesn't know so she goes looking for him and she finds her way to the generator room oh i guess to be fair he did actually fix the generator because the lights are back on
1: oh they were yes yes yeah
0: they definitely were so anyways, she goes to the generator room, looks around, he's not there, and as she's leaving, she closes the door, and his body is hanging from the outside of the door. Mm-hmm. It's kind of propped up, it's above, like, it's higher up than just where he's standing, but it's also pinned to the door by arrows?
1: Yeah, I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I don't know how that happened, but it looks pretty cool. <laughs> Not the best dead body. It's a little too gray, but whatever.
1: No, but it was definitely like a a, a cool reveal. I mean, because at that point, we already knew he was dead, but...
0: Yeah, and, and this is when Alice completely loses it, and I think this is where Adrian King really shines. She screams. She runs back to the cabin that she's been at, you know, the main cabin. She barricades the door with a bunch of things. She uses some kind of rope to keep the handle from opening, and she puts everything she can find on the ground. The scene goes on for a long time, but it's just showing A, how panicked she is, but B, also how capable she is because she's doing the best that she can. Yeah. And she's arms herself. She picks up a baseball bat. And again, I like how the scene goes because she's just starting to calm down. She's just like, okay what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. She's trying to think rationally now. She's getting over her moments of panic or hysteria. I'll use the word hysteria, not in the gendered sense, but in the more colloquial sense of just that's what she's experiencing. Then Brenda's body gets thrown through the window. (laughs) So just as she was calming down, then all of a sudden she ramps it right up because there is a dead body in her room now.
1: Yeah, it was great. I was just waiting for it to happen. It was amazing. I loved it.
0: Oh, yeah. You can kind of see it coming, but I think it still works really well. And so she's again freaking out, and then a jeep pulls up, and she's like, "Oh, oh, yes, Steve's finally here. Steve, help me. And she's undoing all the stuff she had done to barricade the door and running out there thinking it's Steve, but some woman gets out of the car and introduces herself as Mrs. Voorhees, a friend of the Christie's. Yeah. Christie's being Steve and also his family that had owned the camp and run the camp for years back when they were having problems. And she's friendly enough. This is, this is actress Betsy Palmer, who was big on television in like the 1950s or 60s or something, yeah. but I don't know anything about that. Really, I really only know Betsy Palmer from Friday the 13th. And to be fair, I think this was her first movie in like 20 years or something, but well, you know, and she again, comes in- TV star. She comes in in the scene
1: like like very 50s mom. Like, oh, it's okay, dear. What's going on, dear? What's happening? Well, yeah,
0: yeah, she's reassuring, and, you know, obviously Alice is freaking out, and she's like, oh, this bill's dead, there's dead bodies everywhere, and she's just like, no, it's fine, we'll go inside, I'm not afraid, you're okay, you're safe. And then she, they go inside, and Mrs. Voorhees sees the body, and then starts lamenting, oh, she was so young, she was so pretty, who could have done this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love how Betsy Palmer plays this scene. Is she, she goes into kind of a monologue, and she gets more and more sinister as the speech goes on. Yeah. She talks about her son Jason, and her son Jason was the boy that drowned in 1957, and she blames the camp counselors because they were having sex when he drowned and that he should have been watched. So she was the one that killed those two teens in the opening scene in 1958 and she's the one who's been killing people throughout here and she comes at alice they have a bit of a fight and alice gets away temporarily
1: the scene where she said he should have been watched because he was and then she put her hand on alice's head she's like well never mind that dear and, like, she's because yeah,
0: he was special, <laughs> you know? And the funny thing is because, yeah, we eventually do see Jason. Mm-hmm. We even see Jason kind of in her head, drowning, mm-hmm. screaming, you know, help me. But Jason is, like, deformed, and it's yeah. implied, you know, special needs of some sort. I mean, really, he's just deformed because monster. But <laughs> <laughs> that's really that it. deformed, but kids. <laughs> Betsy Palmer had no idea what Jason was going to look like in this movie. So when her line delivery is like, he should have been watched, he was, he was, and then she just stops herself, co- collects herself, and then says, he wasn't a very good swimmer. She's not trying to imply that he was special needs, but at the same time, it kind of, when we eventually see Jason, it works that way. It works that... And again, I think this is just her performance works really, really well here and it inadvertently goes along great with the makeup that Tom Savini actually does with Jason. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh for sure yeah
0: because while she's doing this she that right before she comes at Alice, she starts talking to Jason in her head and again, this is where we see Jason drowning in these brief kind of shots that are kind of like faded over uh, or superimposed kind of onto I don't know the technical terminology onto the shots in the cabin. And then when Alice gets away, mrs Voorhees is looking for her and this is where she starts talking not just to jason in her head but she starts talking in jason's voice he's like kill her mommy kill her yeah that's creepy stuff
1: that really creeped me out. i
0: i again the performance is great here it's i mean it's it's more than a little silly
1: yeah i mean i, I was thinking it because i was watching it last night i was like you know it's really silly but it does a really good job of creeping you out though <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it does a great job of creeping you out
0: yeah Anyways, Alice tries to get to the car, but she freaks out when she sees Annie's body in there, and then she tries running away, and then Steve Christie's body just kind of falls out of a tree, I guess, <laughs> or not even falls, just kind of, just, because it's still, it has, doesn't fall to the ground, but it falls so that it's in frame. Yeah. And, you know, she continues to scream and she continues to run. And then Mrs. Voorhees catches up to her. They continue to fight. And then Alice gets away and hides in the pantry, which I believe is in the cabin where they first fought. So I think she circles back and she's trying to hide. But Mrs. Voorhees eventually finds her, starts breaking through the door. She's got a machete at this point. And Alice whacks her in the head with a pan. She hits the shelf and then hits the ground. And then Alice does something pretty stupid here in that she just walks away thinking it's over. (laughs) But there is blood coming from her head. I mean, I don't want to say, like, I think it's stupid. I don't think anyone in this situation would just absolutely think it's over. But, you know, there's some blood there. Like, she, it, it because the the hit itself, the pan hit, isn't too convincing in making us think that she might have killed her or at least knocked her out. But when we see the blood, it's like, okay, I guess she got her better than it looked, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, so Alice walks to over to the you know the beach area, and this is when Mrs Voorhees attacks her with the machete. They continue to fight. Oars are used, but Alice is able to get to the machete, and then she comes at Mrs Voorhees and beheads her in slow motion. Great stuff.
1: Oh yeah, <laughs> that might be my favorite. all of, part of, all of the, movie. Uh,
0: the Mrs Voorhees hands just go up like while she's you know it's kind of like the chicken with the head cut off you yeah. have a period of time where the chicken can still move and he, these hands going up kind of grabbing for whatever great stuff so with the nightmare seemingly over Alice just kind of gets into the canoe and just goes out to kind of the middle of the lake and this is at this point the the music comes in and the score here in this last scene basically is so different from the score we had had before the score the Harry Manfredini score throughout the movie has almost exclusively been strings mm-hmm. it's like this really kind of violent fast-paced stuff and then here we get it, it reminds me of the Twin Peaks theme but it's like very piano it's slow and it's somber and it's kind of sad yeah yeah But it's very calm.
1: It really doesn't prepare you at all for what is about to happen, and it's it's a great scare.
0: It's morning now, and it's a beautiful morning. The lake looks beautiful, the trees, everything around it looks so serene. Alice is, like, slowly waking up as cops roll in and are trying to get her attention. And just as she looks up, a deformed zombie child Jason grabs her from behind and, and pulls her underneath the water. And this is obviously the, we get jump scare music when this happens, where it goes back to the sort of the normal Friday the 13th, Harry Manfredini score, Mm -hmm. but this is just a fantastic scare.
1: I honestly think like the last like 15 minutes of the movie might be my favorite part of the movie.
0: Oh, yeah, probably. Um, this 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 moment here is my favorite. It's, it's such a wonderful jump scare. It's such a great moment. And it's so great because the movie does everything possible, everything it can do to convince you that the movie is over at this point. Yeah, for sure. A, we have Daybreak. We haven't seen Day in, like, an hour. It's been all night. Mm-hmm. Also, again, the music, the music being so... Dissimilar from everything we've heard up to this point in the movie, the music is loud, but the rest of the scene is silent. Like the cops showing up, you can't hear them. They're calling out to her. Yeah. But like, you're you're the movie's conditioning you to think it's over, so she gets pulled under, and, and right when she gets pulled under, she wakes up in a hospital talking to a cop, and they inform her that they pulled her out of the water and that everyone else was dead. And she asks, "What about the boy? What about Jason?" And the cops like, "To hell." <laughs> did you just watch Friday the 13th part 2 or something there's no Jason here
1: <laughs> he's like what
0: and then we get kind of a cheesy ending where she's just like then he's still there like no you should probably just realize no I had a dream I had a nightmare but whatever yeah. that's uh you know it sets it up sets itself up for a sequel the continuity of this series doesn't make any sense but I love this the scare we get and then kind of what follows I don't want to say ruins it, but I don't really like the hospital scene. Just whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it feels kind of like just like a throwaway scene at the end that they needed to have just to close a movie with, really.
0: I think that's fair. Anyways, that's Friday the 13th from 1980, the original. The original will say classic, but in a way that you raise your voice at the end because (laughs) it's not really a classic. Yeah. But anyways, what did you think of it?
1: Well, you know, I think, again, I don't know if this was on mic or not, but we had spoken about this briefly, and I said something about, oh, yeah, like, it's a favorite of mine. And you said, really? And, you know, I guess because I hadn't seen hey, it. This in is while, nobody's
0: favorite movie. No. It's nobody's favorite movie, even in its own series, basically.
1: No, yeah, exactly. I mean, I guess I hadn't remembered just how slow it was. The whole movie's pretty slow right from the beginning up until, like, the last 15 minutes, really. Yeah, there's a
0: lot of boring moments. The movie doesn't have that much momentum, even in the scene when Alice wakes up, presumably after Bill's been killed, but Mm -hmm. we don't see him. She just goes and makes coffee, and and we see all of it, (laughs) and, like, this isn't building suspense. This feels like wasting time.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Could we chalk that up to you know it being a low budget movie that was hoping that was hoping to make a lot of money off?
0: Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, this movie had its limitations for sure.
1: Yeah, but you know, for a low budget movie that then turned into a major motion picture franchise, I think it's a fine movie. It's definitely I definitely take back what I said a while ago about it being a favorite. Uh, it's just <laughs> after rewatching it, it was just too slow and too boring for me. In yeah, parts.
0: it's. I would describe this movie as decent. It doesn't do anything fantastic, except for maybe that scare with Jason at the end, but most things it does sufficiently. It's hard not for me to compare this, A, with its own sequels, and also B, with it's kind of it's equivalent in the original Halloween and the original Nightmare on Elm Street and this movie is not nearly as good as those. The original Halloween's a classic, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. I actually personally prefer to the original Halloween, although that has probably has more problems than Halloween does. When I rewatch these movies, I kind of note that this movie is lacking Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis is great in Halloween as is yes, Donald Pleasants yeah. but the rest of the cast in that movie sucks. Like, all the—her two (laughs) high school friends are awful. They also look like they're 30. Mm -hmm. In A Nightmare on Elm Street, like, Robert England's great as Freddy, and I like John Saxon as the dad, the cop, but everyone else kind of sucks. And in that case, even the lead, Heather Langenkamp, I don't think is that good, even though I— like her and i root for her i don't think it's a good performance here though we're lacking like a great performance that we get with jamie lee curtis that we get with donald pleasance that we get with robert england though we're lacking that great performance well i guess I, i think betsy palmer fits in but she really only has a couple scenes she's great but i think kind of the ensemble cast is decent here, and it's probably better all around than the ensemble casts in the other movies. Mostly just because there aren't the lows that there are in those movies. There aren't the highs either.
1: This movie really is a movie where the characters aren't really characters. They're just teens to be killed.
0: For the most part, I think, but I think this movie does a good enough job of giving us enough to kind of like the characters. Well, I mean,
1: yeah, I, I was pretty much just saying that. I mean, there's there's really no character development, but as you said, gives us enough to like the characters, but not really to be able to relate to the characters
0: i've determined this kind of formula or this list of checkpoints that a good or a great friday the 13th movie needs to kind of check all these boxes it's seven points and i want to go through it and i mean it's incredibly stupid of course to be looking at this low budget somewhat ripoff of a movie and, and trying to talk about it like this but at the same time it's like all of these movies would basically be following the pattern set in this movie so it's kind of I can imagine a director, a producer, a writer kind of trying to tick all these boxes. So these seven Mm -hmm. things, they do not have to appear in any particular order. There's no order of importance. These are kind of all seven of them are kind of what Friday the 13th is. But number one, we have the sex appeal, because that's as much a staple to this series as the elaborate kills or the violent kills. Mm -hmm. And here we get a sex scene that actually, I don't think it's that sexy, and it's... I don't know, the way it's shot, it's, like, way too passionate for, like, a sex scene in a movie like this. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, well, you know what, though? When I saw that sex scene, I thought about the sex scene in the
0: new Friday
1: the 13th movie? Oh, God, that's just, like, over the top. (laughs) Yeah, that's porn, you know? And I was like, oh, that's that's (laughs) a huge difference. That's,
0: like, the series would be more known for sex scenes like that in the remake even though the remake is more over the top than anything in the original series Mm -hmm. this this scene just to me it feels a bit out of place but anyways so number two is you got to have good kills there's a few good there are a few there are some not so good ones of course or just kind of disappointing either off screen or or you know but i
1: think all of them are off screen except for uh, there's
0: there's there's four i would say that are on screen in that i would say kevin bacon arrow obviously the annie throat slit yeah. and i'll say marcy i'll count that as on screen even though we don't see like i mentioned the moment of oh, penetration yes. yeah, with okay. the axe i would say well, i mean mrs Voorhees getting beheaded that works
1: now would you count steve as as on screen or not because you don't see the, i mean not the not really
0: i mean it's yeah, and I, I mean those are the four that I'm thinking of.
1: I totally agree with you. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Okay. I guess.
0: So number three is one where this movie very much falls short. But number th- the number three part to this formula is Jason does awesome things. Jason <laughs> is basically <laughs> mm-hmm. not in this movie. I mean he does he does do a pretty awesome thing at the end, but that is his only scene. But that's again just goes to show you though this series followed a pretty clear formula. This one is kind of the outlier because all the other ones are Jason. Mm-hmm. Well. One of them isn't, but, anyways. So we've (laughs) got to have a good final girl, and that's who we have with Alice here. I think she's good enough, I don't think she's great. It's a decent performance. I mean, she's got a great scream. That's important for not just for Friday the 13th, but just movies like this. And there's not a lot to her character, but we get a little bit about she's kind of like sad and not happy to be out there thinking about leaving for home. Like there's a tiny bit there.
1: We get more with her character than anybody else's character, except for Annie, I guess, who's killed immediately. Yeah,
0: yeah. And the delivery with Annie's character writing, it's not very good, but yeah. Anyways, Mm -hmm. we need likable or perhaps relatable characters. And again, I think this is one where it just barely checks this. Yeah, Like, none of the characters are that great, but I'm thinking of, like, other movies like this, not just other movies in this series, but I've seen so many horror movies where the comic relief character, the prankster, is a lot less funny and a lot more annoying than Ned in this movie, for instance. So point number six is you got to have good music, and this, this is another one where I think it just barely qualifies. The, the Friday the 13th music throughout the series, I like it a lot. Most of the movies have a very, very similar score, but I also think this is one of the weaker scores in the series. Again, Friday the 13th Part 2 score is very similar to this, but I just think it's a lot better. And the key here isn't as much the music as it is the noise, the audio effect that Harry Manfredini throws in, which is the classic ki 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 ma, ma, ma thing. Yeah, and that's yeah. established here, and that's great, and that's classic.
1: You know, I was trying to remember the whole time I was watching it. I was trying to remember what the words were, and it, and it was "kill mama," right?
0: Yeah, it's even though we hear the sound throughout later on in the movie, Mrs. Voorhees speaking as Jason says "killer mommy." killer and harry manfredini basically just took those two words kill and mom and kind of just cut them off halfway through and and had that kind of echoing it's a really cool effect that's both classic and it's like kind of cheesy it's kind of a cliche at this point like Mm -hmm. you'll hear other people referring to this in like other movies and stuff but there's a reason for that it is classic anyways the seventh point here in this formula is you got to have good scares and more perhaps more importantly you got to treat your scares seriously because this series has a few movies that don't really do that and i think yeah. this movie's trying to be a serious movie i think it fails at that in a lot of ways because it's just not that good of a movie and it's cheap and it's low budget but i think some of the scares work here and especially the jason one at the end i mentioned also the scene with bill fixing the generator even though nothing happens it has you on the edge of your seat thinking something's going to happen so i think that works pretty well yeah.
1: In terms of actual scares, I'm not really sure if you're counting jump scares in on this cuz I I personally don't like jump scares cuz I think
0: they're a little ridiculous. Well, sure, that's part of it. I mean, jump scares yeah, are part I of it. Yeah, I will
1: say I think the best jump scare in the movie is near the beginning when Brenda's almost shot by the arrow. Oh, well that's a that's a yes, fake out yeah.
0: jump scare. I'm not I don't I'm not really counting that, I don't think. But Okay, okay. <laughs> but but if it works for you, that's great. Also, I'm looking at this. I was mistaken. There's more than 7 points. Okay, so number eight is just the fun. And I'm thinking usually just characters having fun. We get a lot of that here, and I think it works well. It doesn't really give the characters any depth, but it just shows you that they're just here to have a good time. And and I think that, I don't want to say it makes it all the more tragic when they all get killed, but it's just like, I like the contrast, though. You know, how this is just like a happy-go-lucky kind of thing that gets interrupted by a killer. And so the final number, number nine, is Atmosphere. Again, we don't get a lot of that here, but I think we get enough. I like the opening scene. I like the dark setting. You have some shots of the moon and stuff like that. The POV camera going through the cabins. It is a little atmospheric. And again, going back to the killer watching them across the lake, there is some attempt at building an atmosphere here. Some other movies in the series wouldn't even really attempt this.
1: When I think of Friday the 13th movies and atmosphere, I guess, I think of Fog in the Woods. Yeah, you know, or fog we don't get that lake. much fog here, but no.
0: we get a lot of woods and we get a lot of darkness.
1: Exactly, yeah. and then the setting of like semi-run-down cabins is also
0: perfect. Just the, the shots inside these cabins, like you see just how kind of run-down the cabins are. The bunks look disgusting. There's like <laughs> knife marks all over the doors from like yeah. kids decades ago, like carving their initials and stuff. And I really like that, and, and I'm thinking very clearly this movie was shot at just an existing camp. -hmm. But I also like that, I mean, that just gives it a bit more character than if you were to construct sets for this. Any kind of final thoughts on Friday the 13th? We've covered what we liked about it. We've mentioned a lot of things we didn't like about it because it's far from a perfect movie.
1: No, I mean, I, I don't really have any final thoughts on it. I think it's just, if you're a fan of Friday the 13th, I don't know whether to tell you if you should watch it or not watch it if you haven't seen it. It's just one of those movies that you probably should watch because it it, it is so deeply entrenched in pop culture. But after watching it again after a few years, I just thought it was, it was a little too boring for me.
0: But I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Even though I like this movie, I do think this is one you can skip, Mm -hmm. because even though this is kind of a landmark film in its own twisted, unique way, I think just Friday the 13th as a series is kind of a landmark, and I think there are several movies in the series. There are at least two movies in the series that are better movies than this, maybe three or four. Mm. If you want to say you've seen a Friday the 13th movie, you should probably check out one of those, maybe even before this.
1: So, Patrick, uh, I guess if we're done with Friday the 13th, which I think we are, we're going to move on to another movie. Oh, we're
0: not done. We've got 11 sequels to go or whatever, but yeah.
1: Well, unfortunately for me, this is the only movie of this kind. And that movie has two iconic characters from Canadian pop culture, and it is Strange Brew from 1983. So it was directed by and written by Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas, who also star in it as Bob and Doug McKenzie.
0: The which one is which? Because I got to mix up.
1: Bob is Rick Moranis and That's Doug is I Dave thought, Thomas. Yeah. yeah. So now for any of you out there listening who don't really know who Bob and Doug McKenzie are, they were characters created on the television show SCTV, which was like a Canadian version of SNL. It's basically Saturday, Saturday Night, Night Live, Live. Yeah. yeah. It was broadcast all throughout Canada, and I think, like, the northern states.
0: SCTV, kind of like the early days of Saturday Night Live, had just some huge comedic talent come off of it. I mean, people that are still impacting entertainment today, because, I mean, Eugene Levy and, and, is it Catherine O'Hara?
1: Yeah, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy. Yeah, they just won
0: Emmys for Schitt's Creek, and, you know, John Candy was from there, and obviously he's...
1: I don't know if passed on since then, but I don't know if Dan Aykroyd was no, because he was on now. SNL. Yeah, he was uh, the yeah.
0: Canadian on SNL.
1: But other people like uh, Dave Thomas, Rick Moranis. Uh, I think Martin Short was on there a few times. Probably
0: that sounds right. Andrea Martin. Yes, from, Andrea uh, Martin. My big fat Greek wedding.
1: Yeah, dude, I love her. So SCTV was this Canadian television show like SNL, but uh, the story goes that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation the CBC people came up to the guys who were producing SCTV and they said, you need more Canadian content in your show. And I think Rick Moranis was like a producer
0: or something of SCTV possibly. Yeah, they were probably like the head writers too.
1: Yeah. And he was like, what do you mean we need more Canadian content? This is a show written by Canadians, for Canadians, starring Canadians and filmed in Canada. So the CBC said, no, no, no. If you want to follow our strict guidelines, because here in Canada, we have this thing that's, that's a bit of an issue where we think things need to be more Canadian." yeah and we're afraid of American and this stuff.
0: this happens even in radio too like it does I, yeah rush is played on the airwaves way more often than they should just because they're canadian <laughs>
1: One night, Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas were sitting around and they thought, you know, how are we going to get more Canadian content into the show that's already super Canadian? They threw a set together of a bunch of like old beer bottles and a big poster that said the Great White North and they donned like lumberjack plaid coats and stuff and toques and they threw on like a really Canadian accent like, hey, you know, stop, uh, you know, how about you take off your hoser, eh? And they just kind of riffed for the last two minutes of every episode of SCTV and the Canadian public loved it. I grew up knowing about the McKenzie brothers, but when I watched reruns of SCTV, it was on the Comedy Channel, which was being broadcast from the States, and they would cut out that last two minutes of Bob and Doug McKenzie. Yeah, so anyway, so, so they would sit around, and they would riff and uh, rip on each other for two minutes, and they would actually drink beer and get a little yeah, they were like up, a, these funny. scenes
0: were like 100% improvised, right? Oh,
1: yeah, 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 like 110%, you know? I think they had one guy on the camera, and then it was just them drinking beer. I guess like fast forward a few years of them at, like, after they started doing this and they became essentially like these cultural icons I guess because this is a time in Canada where you didn't really have iconic Canadians on television or film and they started having like Bob and Doug McKenzie parties and parades and stuff like that. I think they were in like a Thanksgiving Day parade and a Christmas parade and in 1981 they released an album which apparently oh a lot of people bought. My dad has the album, and I have it in I've my room with it. me. I've listened to
0: it. It's so bad.
1: Yeah, it's it's terrible. That's another thing, too. If you ask Canadians if they do know about Bob and Doug McKenzie, half of them will say, oh, my God, I love the McKenzie brothers. They're hilarious. The other half will be, oh, my God, I hate the McKenzie brothers. They're the worst. So, anyways, I looked it I up. I think there
0: there is an argument to say that they're, like, insulting to Canadians because they're absolutely just making fun of Canadians. Oh, for sure, yeah. But the fact that it, it's done by Canadians and stuff, obviously, now who I, I lived in Canada for two years, but I'm not Canadian. So who exactly are they making fun of? Is it like a Northern Ontario type, or like what? Well,
1: it, it's a little different. So back in the '80s, and even I guess in the early 2000s, these people would have still existed, and they would have been making fun of people living just north of major cities, So just north of Toronto, uh, north of Kingston. You still have a lot of people like that. Except instead of wearing plaid, now they're wearing fucking camo, and they talk. Well, about, plaid's I'm
0: been like, uh, plaid's been claimed kind of by the hipster crowd, so. Unfortunately, yes. But, um... Not unfortunately. (laughs) Who the hell cares who wears plaid? Anyone can wear it.
1: (laughs) But yeah, so they would have just been making fun of people who lived either on, like, the outskirts of cities or, like, the fringes... Of, of big cities, yeah, kind of like or a rural. Who, I,
0: I think yeah. I think it's like there may or may not be a term for this, but it's kind of like the Canadian redneck.
1: Well, in the movie, they call them hicks, which yeah. I guess they are. In this period, you had a lot of people moving into major cities from the country. But the funny thing is, I looked up where the exterior of their house was filmed in Toronto, and it was filmed in uh, the Etobicoke area, which is where my dad grew up. He literally grew up like a two minute drive from their house where it was okay. filmed. Which I mean, which is pretty. I want to call it central to Toronto, but it's. I mean, it's definitely in Toronto. But anyways, yeah. So they're making fun of this kind of country reversion of Canadians wearing plaid and eating back bacon and whatnot and drinking lots of beer, specifically Molson Canadian, who also made I think Labatt and I think they own a bunch of different beers right now. Like I think they own all the rights to Coors in Canada and everything that Coors owns. And Heine- oh yeah, because
0: Molson Molson and Coors are they've they're they merged. Yeah. and there's in the U.S. we call it Miller Coors and in Canada it's Molson Coors.
1: But anyways, so they're making fun of that kind of Canadian stereotype which I know many people like that so it isn't really a stereotype. Um, I kind well, of I mean it's a
0: stereotype. It... You're ju- you're just arguing that it's often true, which yes. is true well, of stereotypes I... broadly speaking. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, I'm I'm kind of comparing it as well to the show Letterkenny, the Canadian oh, show sure. Letterkenny. Oh, sure. Yeah. Which Letterkenny is kind of like a newer version. So I mean, to any of you who don't know who Bob and Doug McKenzie are, it's kind of like an 80s version of Letterkenny. But anyways... That's pretty fair. That's pretty fair. So in 81, Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas released an album under the McKenzie Brothers name, and apparently it did relatively well. I mean, as you said, it's terrible. I think it's terrible. My dad thinks it's terrible, but he has it because...
0: If it was just it. a comedy album, it might be great, but they, they did music on it, too. It's yeah, like, and then
1: uh, they talk over the music, and everybody was complaining that, you know, they talk over the music so you can't actually enjoy it, and they're totally right.
0: Which, there is a callback to that album in the movie, when they're showing <laughs> yeah. the movie, and, and they're like, they did this on their album, and it's like, okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so
1: to get into it, it opens with the McKenzie brothers, and they've decided to make a sci-fi movie and show it in theaters for whatever reason. By the way, the, the McKenzie brothers are freeloaders. They don't have a job. All they do is sit around and drink beer, riff, and rip on each That's other, right, and they yeah. live at home with their parents.
0: And they take care of their dog, Hosehead. Oh,
1: dude, best dog ever. I, I want to talk about, <laughs> when we get to it eventually, I want to talk about how confused that poor dog looks at the end of the movie. But uh
0: Hosehead, for me, is so far my second favorite, favorite pet in movies that we've done. I prefer <laughs> the cat named Bitch, yeah. but Hosehead's good. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so anyways, yeah, so it
1: opens with the McKenzie brothers. They've decided to make this sci-fi movie and show it in theaters for whatever reason. And it's just a a packed theater too. uh, Yes. A packed theater in like downtown Toronto. And it's just a terrible movie. They've, they've like screwed it up. The film broke and they're just riffing on screen and people start walking out of the theater and essentially, and this angry mob forms and they're all demanding their money back. So Bob and Doug sneak out the back and uh, (laughs) as they're like sneaking down this alleyway, a father stops them and he goes, my kids have saved up their allowance for a month to see this movie or something like that. And he's like, what am I supposed to tell them? So Bob feeling bad, Rick Moranis feeling bad, hands over $15 and he goes, hey, you know, sorry, this is all I got. They, They get away in their van. It's this scene though, that I wanna point out that really drives the plot of the movie, which I'll come to in a second. But before I get to that, I love the theme song for Strange Brew which is written and performed by Ian Thomas, who's the brother of the I assume Dave that's Thomas.
0: Dave Thomas's brother, right? Yes, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they speed away in their van, they get home, and uh, they start polishing off the rest of their Elsinore beer in the fridge. And their father, who's voiced by Mel Blanc. Mel Blanc, Yeah, Mel completely
0: Blanc. random.
1: Yeah, so, and if, if for anybody who doesn't know that name, it's like the voice of essentially all the Looney Tunes characters.
0: In this movie, he sounds a lot like Yosemite Sam.
1: He does, yeah. Yeah. So he says, you know, you hosers, you you drank all my beer. uh, You got to go to the beer store in the morning. And since they have no money, since they just gave their their beer money away, they come up with this plan to put a mouse in a bottle of beer, of Elsinore beer to get free beer. So they show up to the beer store, which is also kind of funny because back in the 80s, actually, well, before I get into that, I got to give a very brief backstory on how you buy a booze in Ontario.
0: LCBO or the beer store.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you can buy liquor and beer at the LCBO, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario or you can just buy beer at a place called The Beer Store. But back in the 80s, The Beer Store used to be called Brewer's Retail. As far as I know, in this movie, Brewer's Retail and Molson Canadian were on board to be in this movie. So Molson was going to be the beer that they were drinking instead of Elsinore, and Brewer's Retail was going to be the name of the store that they had gone into. But when they heard about this mouse joke in the movie, Molson pulled out, and Brewer's Retail also pulled out. So instead of Molson beer, you have Elsinore beer, and instead of the, uh, the Brewer's Retail chain, you have the beer store. Which turned out to be
0: some Nostradamus shit.
1: Exactly, yeah. Because in Canada today, all the brewers' retail stores uh, are now changed to this orange sign with white bubble letters that say the beer store. It's it's exactly like as it was in in the Strange Brew movie. Yeah, so they go into the beer store, they pull their mouse-in-the-bottle prank... And the guy behind the counter is having none of it. And he says, look, if you want free beer, you got to go up to the Elsinore Brewery. So they say, okay. They drive up, which I think is like the escarpment just in Hamilton. Because I know this movie was partly filmed in Hamilton, too. It was filmed in Kitchener, Hamilton, and Tron. Oh, that's
0: why it's made me depressed.
1: <laughs> got him. Take that, Hamilton. <laughs> but Go uh, yeah. lose
0: another OHL team, you hosers.
1: <laughs> yeah, just take off, eh? But, uh, yeah, so they come to this road, and there's a bunch of signs. And and there's buildings on top of this escarpment. There's Elsinore Castle, Elsinore Brewery, and the Royal Canadian Institute for the Mentally Insane. All of which are actual buildings. Elsinore Castle's Casa Loma in Toronto. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Elsinore Brewery is the Hearn. It's the Hearn Generating Station. And the Royal Canadian Institute for the Mentally Insane, or the RCIMI, is the R.C. Harris Water Treatment Plant. So they decide to drive up to the brewery, and as they're driving up there, uh, they see a woman stuck in a car <laughs> who is somehow stuck between electric gates. So to get her out, they decide to ram their van into her. They free her. Oh, this
0: is one of my favorite bits when Doug makes Bob drive because he's like, uh, if, if she sues us, she'll just sue you. I'm just a, <laughs> I'm just yeah. a hitchhiker. And then so he has to check to see if she has insurance first or something <laughs> like that. He's like,
1: hey, are you going to sue me if I... He's like, just, get, just do it, just do it, come on. Yeah, so they free her, and it turns out she is the heiress to the Elsinore fortune and brewery, Pamela Elsinore. Yeah, she's and, Hamlet, and she's. And been this, actually, is,
0: this is this is when we learned that it's just Hamlet too, because they're talking to the receptionist, and they're, they're, they're with like, donuts. "Oh, we want to talk to that guy," and he's like, "Oh, he's no longer alive." But the person running the company now is Claude. He married his like wife, right? Before, and it's like, "Oh, I see, I see." What, like, it's just Hamlet. They even call him Claude.
1: Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis took over writing for the most part because the first draft of the script was essentially just Hamlet, because they had told whoever was oh. writing, they, they said, "We want it to be like." Hamlet so they should hit hamlet beat for beat and they said no no no. we don't want it to be that
0: on the nose so they just sat down and started rewriting to be it. or not to be eh?
1: <laughs> exactly yeah do i or do i not drink whether beer, it's eh?
0: whether it's beauty in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows eh? of outrageous fortune
1: <laughs> or oh, take off yeah, so they free the heiress, Pamela Elsinore, and it turns out she's been ousted by her uncle, who took over the brewery from her father, who died mysteriously. And under her uncle, there's a guy working who's Brewmeister Smith. Who oh yeah, that's
0: right. I was thinking he is the uncle, but he's not. He's just... No, yeah. yeah. That's right. And he's played, uh, played, by, it, played by fantastic
1: Max von Sydow.
0: I just saw The Exorcist on Halloween night, <laughs> Yeah, and I don't want to say range, because, I mean... Max Fensito has range. He's an incredible actor. But he plays this role so straight. He plays it as serious as if he's in The Exorcist. And that just makes it really funny. Because he's got these goofy teeth goofy fake teeth and everything but i just like and he talks like it's, this the
1: whole movie yeah over, it's, over. So it's
0: not it's not so much the range of the actor that i'm that i'm praising but i'm, I'm praising the sense of humor here of von sidow or von sidow in just like i'm this incredibly accomplished actor who's been in ingmar bergman movies been in oscar winning movies and like mm-hmm. sure i'll just fuck around with these guys for for a few hours a day
1: i mean he must have definitely enjoyed it right i mean there's no way i i, I don't think there's a way you couldn't enjoy i would hope so <laughs> Yeah, so he's so he's this Brewmeister Smith. He's running the brewery more so than the uncle, who's just this bumbling incompetent person. He's he who's almost as bumbling and almost as incompetent as the Mackenzie brothers. But the issue here is that when Pamela turns twenty one, she which she has just turned twenty one, she will legally inherit the brewery and the fortune, essentially.
0: <laughs> she's like in her mid thirties. I know, yeah, yeah. Well uh, she was she was this actress, I can't remember her name, but she's in the movie Black it's Lynn, Christmas.
1: It's Lynn Griffin, I think. Okay.
0: She's in the movie Black Christmas from 1974, which many consider to be the first slasher movie and that kind of inspired Halloween in some ways and thus loosely kind of in, in third degree of Kevin Bacon kind of way inspired Friday the 13th. Uh, she's in that and she's like 21 in that and that was like 10 years before this.
1: <laughs> well, I guess she ages gracefully. Good for her. But She's uh, pretty.
0: She just doesn't look like she's in her early 20s. I'll no. put it that yeah, way. You're, yeah, you're right.
1: We've just been introduced to The Uncle and uh, and Brewmeister Smith. We get evil vibes because evil music plays whenever they're on screen or or they're spying on people on cameras, but we don't really know why they're evil. And it turns out that Brewmeister has put this mind control agent in the Elsinore beer, Mm -hmm. and we see him testing it on the lunatics from (laughs) the Royal Canadian Institute for the Mentally Insane or the RCI. Because
0: because Brewmeister Smith also runs that for some reason? Yeah, he
1: does, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> it's great and then they're playing like this hockey game because I, I, it, it all just kind of happens quickly and we get more explanation later but i would like all to these point out, come out
0: we just saw the first friday the 13th movie and yet we didn't see a hockey mask until this movie are you
1: saying that this is the original friday the 13th no <laughs> oh shucks okay never
0: mind but i'm uh, saying hamlet should have had jason in a hockey mask going around killing <laughs> laertes that's what i'm saying <laughs>
1: So while all this is going on with all these these testing, this like hockey game on the lunatics who respond to various noises played on a piano, which I guess is supposed to mimic somebody playing an organ at at hockey games, you know, like dun, 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 dun. The brothers run into a guy who's working at the brewery, who is...
0: (laughs) Rosie LaRose.
1: Exactly. Rosie LaRose. Jean LaRose. Montreal
0: Canadiens Rookie of the Year a few years ago who doesn't play hockey anymore.
1: Yeah, because he had a nervous breakdown, and he's played by Angus McGuinness. But yeah, he's great. He's a, he's he's this French Canadian character. So he kind of leads the brothers to Pamela and he
0: Another character, by the way, that's way too old. Like he was Rookie of the Year a few years ago, not like thirty years ago. Oh, yeah, <laughs> he looks no, like yeah, he's in totally his thirties. Right. Yeah. NHL Rookie of the years are like nineteen.
1: <laughs> yeah, I never I, I didn't even think of that. I didn't even pick up on it. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's Rosie LaRose. Everybody calls him Rosie. But yeah, so he kind of helps the brothers out to find Pamela and uh, the uncle, and they're going to approach him about this mouse in the beer, which they then get a job at the brewery. But that's only because Pamela is taking over the brewery, so she's saying, you know, she's like, oh, the the McKenzie brothers can have a job here, and I'm going to fire Brewmeister Smith. So Brewmeister Smith, who has this, as we learn, this this world domination plan of mind-control beer in the works, he comes up with a plan to remove Pamela so he can stay making this beer and, and distributing it. We don't really see what his plan is going to be. All he does is grab a couple guns. Before we continue, I want to point out that this movie is a lot like Shocker. You have to kind of remove all your expectations of society and how the world works
0: to enjoy this Oh, yeah. This, this movie is this a cartoon, basically. Yeah,
1: We see that later on. A There's a scene big scene at
0: the end that actually doesn't quite sit right with me where the movie's completely off the rails. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this movie from the beginning is... is I mean, even just like when they're showing the movie, the, the film breaks and then... Mm-hmm. It's the two of them talking on the on their the Great White North set, but it's like, what is this? Is this live? It's not live. They're in the theater. Did they just? Was this part of the movie that they actually set up? Like, I don't know what's happening. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. Yeah,
1: which I want to talk about that at the end because none of that really works for me. But again, I'll talk about that at the end. Yeah, so the Brewmeister comes up with a plan to remove Pamela. And we also learn in this scene that the Brewmeister and Pamela's uncle killed Pamela's father. But we also see this from the ghost of Pamela's father, who's possessing an arcade game in the cafeteria that Pamela oh, and God, the brothers yeah. are playing. So That's right. the effects are all right. It's all a little goofy. But again, you have to kind of get rid of all these notions of normality and, and the way things work. The Brewmeister's plan is to knock out Pamela and... And the former brewery manager, who I didn't write his name down, but he's like a friend of Pamela's, he's going to run the brewery after she takes over. The brewmeister and the uncle are going to put them in empty kegs and then put them in the back of the McKenzie brothers' van. And uh, they're also going to knock out the McKenzie brothers and cut their brake lines, put them in their van, and then hopefully they'll crash into the lake, into Lake Ontario, and everybody will drown. Right. This is also the scene where we get more explanation of what is going on with his world plan. And again, we have this, what I call the piano hockey fight scene, because this guy is fiddling around with the piano. He's like, yeah, I, I can make them fight each other. And again, yeah, the, like...
0: The, yeah, is that like their theme song or whatever? That It's just think... a few notes, but is that what gets them to fight? As someone who hasn't watched a lot of SCTV, I don't know what that sound is. They more or less open the movie with that.
1: Well, when Bob and Doug McKenzie get in there, they do like a do-do-do-do-do-do-do, which is their...
0: Yeah. Yes, that is that like their theme? Like what? I is guess that? that's their. Because so it shows up I... in that awful song from the album with Getty Lee too.
1: Yeah, that, that's like their theme, I guess, because that's how they would open every episode. But okay. I think that that originally, they probably couldn't get the rights to it, but I think originally, the song on the piano or the organ was supposed to be the original Hockey Night in Canada theme.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But Because, by the way, I looked it up because I had remembered this. Uh, Molson was a huge advertiser on the Hockey Night in Canada openings in the 70s sure. and 80s. I guess there's a tie-in there, you know, Elsinore and, and hockey and Molson and hockey. Um, Where
0: was Tim Hortons in 1983, though? That's what I want to uh, know. Tim
1: Hortons was crashing his car and dying in a fiery wreck on the 401 oh, uh, no. before Tim Hortons Coffee. <laughs> yeah, so Bob and Doug get knocked out after they find this, this plan and start playing their theme on this piano and they get thrown into their van. Eventually we see them lose control of their van and ramp essentially off off a dock into Lake Ontario, which we get this beauty shot of Toronto <laughs> in the background.
0: Yeah, you see the uh The CN the, Tower. The CN Tower. Which surpri- I didn't know the CN Tower was that old. That kinda surprised me.
1: Yeah, I think it was put up in the sixties, maybe. It's
0: no skydome uh, yet, that was eighty nine. But yeah, it would, yeah. Otherwise, it would be in that shot. I'm sure. Slash I'd the Rogers Centre, I guess. Now, but.
1: Ugh, I'd pause the movie at that scene when I was rewatching it, and I looked at like a modern day image of the skyline of Toronto, and it's so vastly different that it's that oh, is literally sure, insane. Yeah. Pamela and her former brewery manager or the former brewery manager are saved out of these kegs, but Pamela is really saved because Rosie shows up there for whatever reason and he saves Pamela by giving her the last of his breath and he sinks to the bottom of the lake with the McKenzie brothers in their van.
0: First of all, this is the the world's shortest movie to feature an in intermission, but it's also the world's yes. shortest intermission too. It's about it's, three it's, seconds. It's, the intermission just pops up on the screen and then just almost immediately it's right back. It's kind of oh, no, funny. I
1: love it. I thought like, it'd be so funny to be watching it in theaters and seeing people like get up to use the washroom or something, you know, <laughs> and then having the movie come back, like, oh, I guess it's still on, oops. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, like- I mean,
0: it's kind of a funny joke, but mostly it's a joke on the audience.
1: <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah. Police divers are sent in to uh, to pull out the bodies of uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie. <laughs> and when they go down to this the van... This is my
0: favorite joke of the movie here. Dude, it's
1: a solid joke. When they go down to the van, the windows are rolled up and they're just sitting in complete total water. But they're sipping out of their little stubby Elsinore bottles.
0: Well, they're not sipping they're they're breathing out of the they're breathing the air that's left in those. Yeah, well, see, that's it looks why like re- they're drinking.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then and you can see like all the bottles, like all the empty bottles floating like between them on the ceiling of the van. And the cop diver knocks on the window, <laughs> and Doug pulls out his like ID and because like the cop that his and rolls the window yeah. down. But yeah, so Rosie, Bob, and Doug were all saved. And <laughs> my favorite scene is is uh is coming up shortly but bob and doug are then tried or like they're going to be tried for the kidnapping of pamela so this is my favorite scene i mean because i I honestly wouldn't even mention this whole bit in the movie if it wasn't for this scene but they're with their lawyer walking up the steps to the courthouse (laughs) and uh there's like a bunch of like reporters there and the lawyer turns to them and goes don't worry i'll handle the press and he just busts out these kung fu moves and starts like beating the shit out of all of them (laughs) and he goes and he straightens his suit, and he's like, that's how you handle the press. <laughs> I just thought it was so stupid that it was great. Um, yeah, it,
0: it's, a, it's a joke that belongs more in, like, Airplane or something like that. It oh, doesn't, for sure. It's kind of out of place in this movie, but it's funny.
1: I'm not even really sure it knows what it's trying to be, other than... Well, yeah,
0: it's it's incredibly goofy, but it, it's not like a joke a second, like some movies, like, like uh, you know, the Airplane, Naked Gun, those. It's not quite there.
1: I heard an interview from Dave Thomas, and he said that if they could could redo Strange Brew if they could remake Strange Brew. He would want it to be like even crazier. Not really funny. He wanted it to be more surreal. Than, I could see I guess, it
0: going it in that direction. Yeah, I could. But, but uh, that's not really what we yeah. have here.
1: No, exactly. So Bob and Doug are eventually sent to the institute because they're essentially deemed stupid and uh,
0: yeah, they're too. They're unfit to stand trial. They're too dumb <laughs>
1: yeah which he has he has bullets in his doug has bullets in his nose to stop his nose from bleeding and he laughs and he shoots them out of his nose and they go off and ricochet around the room <laughs> i liked it i liked that too because you're right like it really is a cartoon so anyways they're sent to the institute rosie escapes the hospital and he shows up at the institute and he proceeds to rescue the brothers and pamela and then they all come up with a plan essentially to stop the brute to stop brewmeister and the uncle pamela and bob are captured by brewmeister smith and they're put into a vat of beer that is slowly filling. This is probably the joke that this movie's m- most remembered for. Rick Moranis drinks all the beer in the vat to save them from drowning, and then he's like yeah. as big as the vat. But uh, while all that is going on, Rosie and Doug get all these crazy hockey players, these these insane hockey players, and they capture the uncle. And they kill Brewmeister in a really cool fight scene, actually. I, I really like the fight scene where... Where good old Max is just kicking the shit out of all these hockey players and, like, crushing their heads. Yeah, and then Rosie kills them. But, oh no, what's the last thing that could possibly go wrong? Uh Uh-oh, they got some beer out to Oktoberfest in Kitchener, Ontario.
0: So they have to run out to Kitchener. But they can't get there in time.
1: Exactly, they can't get there in time. So they have to go home and enlist the help of the McKenzie brothers' dog, Hosehead. I don't know if we've mentioned this. He's just a black lab with, like, a white stripe. He's a black lab with
0: with skunk stripes, basically.
1: Yeah, it's great. (laughs) So uh, they pull out a map, and I felt so bad for the dog here. They pull out a map. And they're, like, yelling at the dog, essentially, how to get to Kitchener. They're like, okay, take the 401, keep an eye open for, like, County Road 8 or whatever. Remember, take Highway 6. Yeah, yeah, take Highway 6. (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> so then the dog just takes off, or like he starts running down the street to the Superman theme, and then jumps in the air, <laughs> and starts. It's flying. not the
0: Superman theme; it's its own heroic music.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you could call it a can, I guess, to the Superman theme. It sounds, it yeah. sounds similar, and it's definitely what they're going for. Because as soon as the oh, dog sure. jumps into the air, he sprouts a little, a little red cape, and he's flying towards Kitchener and again i felt so this is where the movie kind of
0: loses me to be honest i know oh yeah like i get it's the movie's never really been attached to reality that's true but i don't know this this scene's just not for me
1: <laughs> i definitely see people walking out of the theater let's put it that way. i'm not walking out of the theater because
0: i enjoyed the rest of the movie but i'm just like this is too dumb to be funny for me
1: yeah, this poor dog. And I want to point out, like, my one of my other favorite scenes in this movie is when this dog is clearly laying on a board against a green screen, with like a fan being blown at him, and his cape flies off him, like his cape comes undone, <laughs> and the dog. Yeah, that has like to be unintentional, right? Oh, it's got to be. Yeah. Yeah, it's the cape was not meant to in. come off. I don't think. So this dog crash lands into this tent at Oktoberfest and scares everybody away from the beer hits because the, he hits the,
0: the ground skunk. hard. <laughs> I know. It I does know. not I look so safe. Bad.
1: No, no, it doesn't. It's like
0: someone just threw the dog from like 10 feet up in the air. Just on the ground.
1: For everybody listening, it looks like they literally catapulted a dog into a tent. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. In the air. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so it hits the ground, scares everybody out, so nobody drinks the contaminated mind-controlled beer. And essentially the day is saved. Uh, Rosie's okay. Pamela's okay. They're going to run the brewery, and the brothers are going to have a job there. Well, uh, and they also,
0: they they promise, the brothers promise to get rid of the beer. And once they learn that, all it does is, like, work as mind control for, like, a couple hours or whatever, I think it's implied that they're just going to drink it all and, and yeah, just they don't they care drive about away the consequences. With the, yeah, yeah. They,
1: they drive away with the big rig at the end. So, like, that's really the end of the movie, but I guess the real end Well, during is the credits,
0: them. it's the two of them are talking the entire time. They're making jokes about people's names in the credits, talking yeah, and, about and how the... they didn't know what a grip was until they made this movie.
1: I think that's some of the funniest stuff in the movie, because you can tell that they're actually bevved up. And, like, joking okay, out. Yeah. if you rewatch it, like, you can tell that they've actually been drinking a bit, and they're trying not to laugh as they're trying to film this. Because then they get to the point where they're like, "Oh, it's it's two minutes already." Well, okay, I guess we got to go then, you know. So but, yeah, uh, so
0: that's probably the closest to their SCTV skets yes, sketches yeah. of all the of all the scenes in this movie. That's probably the nearest to what this movie came from.
1: Yes, but yeah, so that's really the whole movie. It's this weird, bizarre thing from 1983 that I think is hilarious, and
0: uh, I think it's funny. I think it's actually not as funny as I remembered it. Remember when I first saw it? You know, it was several years ago, and I did have the same similar reaction that I had now, where I'm like, "This is pretty good." And then you get to the Superdog stuff, and it's like the smile from my face was just like wiped off, and I'm like, "I'm embarrassed to be watching this. This is too stupid." But up yeah. until then, it's mostly funny. There, there's two big gags, and they're both big ones that just really don't work for me. It's Bob after he drank the beer, just the visual gag of him with the giant body. Uh, yeah. And then it's Superdog. Those are my two biggest complaints
1: those ones are definitely probably my least favorite gags some of my most favorite ones which i didn't mention the one at the very beginning it was the mgm lion
0: oh god that's great
1: instead of the roar it burps and the camera pans and it's just like (laughs) it's just like a cutout with an actual lion and they're standing there like they're playing playing with with his tail tail (laughs) this heavily sedated lion (laughs) No, that is
0: hilarious (laughs) stuff to me Yeah, Yeah, it's amazing. That's one of the better scenes of the movie right there, I think.
1: And then there's also a scene, I didn't really understand it, but when Pamela is meeting with her uncle and her mother, who married her uncle after her father was murdered, they're eating dinner and it's just KFC. And I thought, the only thing that's funny about that is that they're really rich and they're eating KFC. Or is it that in canada i don't know what it's like in the states but in canada if you're gonna get together like if you're gonna have a family gathering you go out and you buy kfc it's just like a thing like if you have a family gathering in a park it's kfc you have a bunch of people over yeah i've had your house it's KFC. i've had
0: i've been at giant family reunions because my father is one of 13 children so and i've been to at least a few of them where we're at a park and someone just brings like eight buckets of kfc or whatever yeah
1: But I mean, for the most part, I think I enjoyed all of the gags, except really the giant bob one and the hose head one. Those are the ones that are just too
0: silly for me. Like, yeah, they'll work for that's... a lot of people, but this movie doesn't... Like, what I really like about this movie is just the interaction between the two, mainly, uh, Moranis and, and Thomas. I, like, they're so so great how they just annoy the hell out of each other, but they're also, like, on the same wavelength. Like, they're always thinking the same thing.
1: Yeah, now, see, that's kind of where the movie faltered for me. For the most part, I like the way that they interacted with each other, but at a certain point, it just gets too, like sibling rivalry you know where they will be like walking
0: along there's a lot of I mean it's an hour and a half of it as opposed to two minutes at the end of a television show so I mean yeah I I think you could say it wears on you a bit but that stuff mostly works for me
1: it's funny though because I also looked up um, uh, reviews for the movie and Gary Arnold in his review for the Washington Post wrote neither triumph nor fiasco. Strange Brew leaves plenty of room for improvement, but I hope Thomas and Miranda get the chance to demonstrate that they've learned a lot from the mixed assortment of nuttiness in their first movie comedy. And then J. Scott. For I don't the Globe think that's unreasonable. I don't no, think that's I, an unreasonable I, review. I agree with it. I, I agree with it. And then we have the Globe and Mail, which is a Toronto newspaper. Right. Uh, J. Scott wrote, "What's terrific about the Mackenzie Brothers is their offhand depiction of two English Canadian working-class dimwits. And what's terrific about the movie is its equally offhand surrealism." I don't know if I agree with him. I think he's probably just jerking it a bit because he's like, "Oh, it was filmed in Toronto by Canadians." Oh, uh, you know. Oh, I, I, I forgot one. I think this is the one that's probably the closest to what the movie is for me yeah well in some ways but uh janet maslin i think that's how you pronounce her name for the new york times wrote oh and it's
0: a famous movie critic
1: oh really okay listen to this she goes anyone who's partial to the Mackenzie's humor doubtless has a fondness for beer the price of a ticket could buy enough beer for an experience at least as memorable as this one <laughs> and that's I pretty s- funny yeah and i see what she's saying and i think in some ways i agree but would i've gone to see this in theaters when it came out or driving probably not but i'm glad i'm, I'm watching it for
0: like 250. now here's the question do you is this a drive-in movie because this movie is is basically telling you to drink while watching it <laughs> and even in a drive-in setting I think it's technically illegal to be drinking beers in your car right
1: yeah well, you know I have to say I mean
0: Patrick
1: <laughs> Patrick you know I have a bit of an issue and I it, come, it comes to With me. With drinking? Well, maybe that, yeah. But, uh, I, well, exactly that. But, yeah, I mean, watching this movie, it made me thirsty for a Canadian, honestly. Like, they'd walk into their house and it's just like full of beer, like beer boxes and bottles. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so thirsty right now. And they're just talking about drinking beer. And I mean, really, it's probably not a good drive in movie for that but i could see it playing at a drive in
0: oh yeah this b- i think in some ways at least this movie belongs in a drive in even though it it is a movie that you're kind of meant to drink beer while watching so maybe like a late night movie on television it works in that sense but this movie's so stupid and silly and it just like yeah i think i think it's a, i think it's a drive in movie still in some ways and there is I wouldn't call it surrealist, but it's like it verges on surrealism in in a few instances. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's just a weird, it's a weird movie. It's a weird, dumb comedy that's mostly pretty darn funny.
1: So I guess that's both of our uh, our movies, Patrick, uh, both Friday the 13th and a personal favorite of mine, Strange Brew. So I guess on that note, how do you think it would work as a double feature or would it work as a double feature?
0: All right. Well, I'm going to say first off, if this is a drive-in double feature, we should reverse the movie. Strange Brew should come first. Friday the thirteenth should come second. The reason being that, you know, Strange Brew is incredibly goofy, so in that sense it kinda of belongs as your second, but it is just a normal movie. It's not quite like I, I don't think I would call it family friendly, but it's not offensive in any way. It's mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's like a PG movie, you know? And yeah. Friday the thirteenth is it's not actually as violent as probably its reputation. Some of that's earned by the sequels, although this is one of the more violent movies in the series. But, I mean, you got stabbing, you got throat slitting, you got good amount of blood, you got a sex scene. I mean, this is this is classic second movie stuff, and it's that kind of slasher, low-budget kind of exploitation-y movie, even though it was released by a major studio, that really kind of thrives in your second end of the double feature.
1: I guess I agree with that, but I also feel... Me personally, I feel that Strange Brew should come second. And okay. that's only because, for me, Friday the 13th was so slow and boring throughout the most oh, of it. Oh, I see. And then after that, like it has a fine ending, and overall it's a fine, scary movie. But I just want something that kind of picks me up or wakes me up for the second movie. And I think this does that, especially if it's going to be around midnight, 11 o'clock, something like that, you know?
0: Well, here's the thing, though. if you're If you're drinking to Strange Brew in your car... Which you probably shouldn't be doing. It's probably <laughs> illegal, even at a drive-in theater. You don't want that. You want that to be your first movie. You want to be. You want to be not drunk when you drive home, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and that is if you are drinking,
0: but which we don't recommend. Yes. I mean, we recommend drinking when watching this movie, but only in the safety of your own home or someone else's that you've broken into. <laughs>
1: But I mean, yeah, for, for me, it's it's really just the speed of Friday the 13th really just kind of puts it as a first movie. To me, it falls into the category of almost like a Dr. No style first movie.
0: I understand what you mean because it, it does have a lot of the problems that we complain about with Dr. No with the slow pacing and stuff. But I, I also just think that the moments of violence, however brief they are, that's second movie stuff. Mm-hmm. ideally, if you have a—I mean, sometimes we'll, in this podcast, we'll be getting two movies that are probably similar to Friday the 13th, and maybe it's a toss-up. But, like, when, you, when you're when you pairing it with, you know, like a PG-rated comedy kind of thing, that's, that's just my reasoning there.
1: Patrick, I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one.
0: All right, that's fine. Well, I guess we didn't say, which—is this a good double feature? Um, I'm going to say no.
1: I didn't have a problem with it, but I think— you're probably right. It's probably not a good double feature, just because they're just so vastly different. I mean, just I mean, I I way. think
0: this would be a uh, I think this would be a worse pairing if Friday the Thirteenth were a more serious horror movie than it is. If it's The Exorcist or you know The Wicker Man, yeah, the original Wicker Man, not the Nicolas Cage Wicker Man. That's funnier than Strange Brew, but <laughs> because because Friday the Thirteenth, it's trying to be serious. But it misses its mark in enough ways where it's a movie that I feel comfortable watching, not taking it seriously. It's a movie, you know, it's just about having a good time. And in that sense, it's kind of like, I mean, that's what Strange Brew is all about. They evoke the same kind of feeling for me, but in such different ways, such wildly different ways that, you know, I don't think they work that well together.
1: I agree with you on that one.
0: All right. So which of these two films do you prefer?
1: You know, I don't think it's really a question, to be honest. It's definitely Strange Brew for me. And it's, it... I've
0: got to agree as well. Even though I'm. I, well, I'm more of a horror fan than you, and I love the Friday the 13th series franchise. I actually do think the original is one of the better movies in the series. It's certainly not one of the best, too. But Strange Brew is. I mean, it makes me laugh a good deal. It has it has its share of jokes that don't work for me, and I mentioned mm-hmm. the two big ones, but there are others where it's just like, okay. But for the most part, I mean, it's it's a goofy movie, and it largely works, again, on the strength of, I don't want to say those two characters, but the, the characters brought to life by those two actors. I think it's yeah. more the actors than the characters in this case.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So, Jim, up next, we have The Strangers from 2008 which is good because I was kind of shit talking that movie a bit and hush, <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking forward to maybe changing my opinion on it cuz I've only seen it once. And for our second feature it's It the Terror from Beyond Space from 1958. And I've so never seen that and
1: I'm looking forward to
0: pretty darn different movies it, it seems like it's I've only seen I've seen each one but only once. So that's what we'll be doing next time, and until then, be sure to follow us on Twitter at DriveInPodcast, no underscores, hyphens, or spaces. Keep following us for any updates, and until then, I'm Patrick. And I'm Jim. And thanks for joining us, and and take off.
1: (laughs) Yeah, take off, losers, eh?